Pregnancy, birth, parenting. It means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are often the kind that get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we will leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are the birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks. Are you ready? Welcome to the birth talks. So as we dive into the conversation today, I think it would be great to uh, just start off by each of you taking a few minutes to share a bit of your work, uh, knowing that the bio doesn't do enough justice for the work that you do. Um, Cassandra, would you be interested in starting? Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, so uh, I'm a doula, um, and I think that's where um, uh, my, what I would call my primary work. Um, and, um, and then my work as a community taught herbalist um, has deeply supported my doula work. Um, and uh, I'm also um, a birth center aide at the Toronto Birth Center. I helped to found with um, a few other folks, uh, Okama Collective. And so we're a BIPOC uh, doula collective that wants to uh, hold sacred and provide support for all BIPOC folks birthing. Um, and I really feel like I need to emphasize also for queer folks birthing and trans folks birthing, um, because that is definitely an area of birth work that is under fire. Um, and those are communities that are deeply underserved. Cheyenne, for yourself, what inspires your work and what continues to inspire your work? A lot of how I'm here is, is solely coincidental. Uh, background is in, in child development and, and education. Um, but I was always interested in how like the childbirth process then goes on to affect children and you know our lives even as adults. Um, so I've sort of been focusing on how the birth experience of the parent themselves then contributes to um, you know attachment relationships with the child um, and then both of their mental health going forward. Um, so I had fully intended to um, you know do what you're supposed to do and go to school and get a job and and so on but I ended up finishing my master's degree in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and there wasn't really anything that I wanted out there. So I said, you know what, I'm just gonna create my own opportunity. Um, so through my research, I, I did highlight a need for education for, for parents and families, as well as um, healthcare providers. Um, it's sort of a dual role of parents learning how birth system works and how to sort of protect themselves from some of the things that go on. Um, and then simultaneously working with the healthcare providers to prevent them from doing these things in the first place. Tamini, what brought you into this work? So the project that I worked on with the group came about both through kind of anecdotal experiences, but also um, through conversations with Black midwives more localized in Toronto, um, that there were like low numbers of Black people accessing services. So people not, and us not seeing ourselves represented in our client base. Why would that be? 
And so that really kind of drove the question around, you know, what is preventing Black people in Ontario from accessing midwifery care services? And really what we wanted to do was to create content that would speak directly to the experiences of Black people um, accessing pregnancy care options, speak to the experiences of Black midwives and Black midwifery students, um, but also present publicly available information that, you know, it's not solely for Black people, this is also for um, folks who are providing care to Black people, so it's relevant to everybody. Do you find that that was similar for yourself, Cassandra and Cheyenne, in terms of what has informed your work um, and what has informed the collectives or the organizations that you have created? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, it, Jenna Rango and, um, and I were sitting down in uh, in her living room talking about how desperately we wish that we could work with the people that we got into this work for, which is people who look like us, who live like us, um, who have the same lived experiences of, of microaggressions, who celebrate the same way as us, you know. Um, and as a doula, I mean, doula care is treated as a, um, as a privilege as opposed to something that's a part of um, this transitional process for someone that that is an honoring that everyone deserves access to and so we were and and then as well too just for doulas like when we were working with with our community um, we were doing a lot of pro bono work right because it's um, you know you're looking at 1700 for uh, labor support and maybe three meetings before and, and after um, in total for prenatal postpartum. And, and, you know, that's insufficient care, let alone a lot of money to spend. And so we, we wanted to be able to um, live off of the work we love. And, and we also wanted to be able to love the work that we're living off of, for lack mm -hmm. of a better way to say it. And so that's where Okama Collective came to be. And for yourself, Cheyenne? The reason that I chose to do the research that I did was just because I was in an academic space um, and there wasn't any research that was suitable for what I needed. Um, of course, we're not collecting race-based um, statistics in Canada for, you know, around birth and, and pregnancy and infant and, and perinatal mortality, um, things like that. So. It was more of what is happening and then going to look for information and not finding anything and then realizing that there must be a gap, but I can't label it um, based on, um, you know, in an academic sense of, of research. Um, so it was more just to fill the gaps that came out of my, my study itself. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I feel like in a Canadian context, we often recognize, just as you said, Cheyenne, there is no race-based data, but mm -hmm. even beyond the lack of race-based data is just much of um, what people perceive about healthcare or what they have access to is largely just American-based. Um, we can name, you know, three or four people in the last, I don't know, couple of months uh, on social media, who's talked about um, Black maternal health care disparities, but they're all American. And my, my curiosity is, how does that play into 
the advocacy work that you do in a Canadian context? Do you have resistance because we don't have the data? Do you meet challenges just because people are clueless, if you will, because mm -hmm. they just don't have context that's Canadian? Does it even have an impact in any of the advocacy that you do? I think it's time that we shift to actually listening to people and using their lived experiences as enough, um, you know, quote unquote proof mm -hmm. um, that there's a need and going forward with that. So that's that's also why I chose to do my research in the way that I did. It was it was purely just interviews, you know. It ends up being one of those things where like, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Cheyenne, but like you share the stories and people are like, oh, that's anecdotal. And then you'll go and have the the actual statistics and people will be like, oh, I, I need I need a, a lived experience. I need a I need a case study, you know? And so it, it you're always being given this like pushback no matter what it is. So yeah, stats are important, but also just simply getting down to the bare bones of listening to people and including people actually prioritizing people in their own healthcare is something that that needs the needs the priority. I totally hear what you're saying, Cheyenne. I totally hear what you're saying. I get that too. And when people say, oh, you know, it's just, you know, anecdotal. Um, mm. you know, I I have I am of the mind that one person is too many. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't care how many stories I need, one person experiencing um, you know, medical racism is too many. 100%. Yeah, and if I can add as well is that similarly with this project that I'm going to say their names, myself, um, Hanan Youssef and um, Sojourner San Vicente that we worked on with Learn Ontario Midwifery was that, you know, we were kind of in this back and forth around, you know, we created this questionnaire, um, talking with Black people about their understandings of Ontario midwifery care to really get an understanding of what understandings are there. <clears throat> and we're like, okay, it would be equally important to like kind of base this in research so that there are those factual numbers, but also holding space for that, like that anecdotal um, evidence that is evidence that people are saying, like, I don't know what this is, or I experienced this in healthcare, that that is also evidence. Um, and that projects can still be created around that. Like we did not produce any kind of research or written thing around, you know, the findings from our questionnaire, for example, but we were still able to produce a video series and trying to balance both of those kind of realities of empirical evidence and anecdotal evidence. Are people starting to care about the anecdotal stories the more that we talk about them? I, I think they are. Um, I often do um, talks and workshops um, with my research and I've organized it into themes and I say like, I have, you know, three to seven stories that fit with this theme. And when I'm sharing um, the, the quotes and the voices of people um, with their names changed, of course, but when I can say this person experienced this. Um, and also I think it helps that, you know, everybody in my studies in the GTA and I can say like, hey, this person could have given birth in the same hospital as you. You know, they could be your neighbor. And when you're able, when you feel um, you know, it hits so much closer to home when you have that context rather than this percentage of Canadians because, you know, it's it becomes so much bigger. Um, so when I can say, hey, your neighbors are experiencing this, I think people feel it a lot, a lot deeper. Um, is there a difference in supporting non-Black folk versus those who identify as Black for yourself? thousand percent. What does that look like for you? It comes out in moments, hey, like... It comes out in moments because, you know, 
we uh, we we are we are in Canada, right? So um, racism is really polite, <laughs> you know. Um, it's well hidden until um, ish gets real, um, and so there have been times I've had to sever contracts for my um, safety. Um, I have to put sexual harassment clauses into my contracts now, um, which feels absolutely just counterintuitive to the relationship that you're building with these families. Cause I try to walk into it, human, 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 you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but depending on how you present yourself, um, what are someone's deep underlying beliefs, um, that they may not even be aware of or acknowledging, because if we, you know, like just straight up, if we are acknowledging that we have um, generational, intergenerational ancestral trauma, then there's definitely intergenerational ancestral oppression um, and prejudice, right? Like that is gonna be there. And so it'll pop out in some of the most challenging moments, um, whether you're in the labor or postpartum. And usually when someone is in their own state of um, duress, right? And, um, you know, sometimes you leave it for a conversation afterwards and sometimes it's, I have to sever the contract. And I know some doulas who have said that they just will not work with white people anymore. They just will not do it. And, and, you know, and we have to, we have to be safe and protect ourselves as well too, because as, as, and I can only speak from the experience of being a doula, we are sometimes in one of the most vulnerable positions, um, in that. You know, we don't have like, we don't have a regulating body behind us or against us, if that makes sense. So it's like a double-edged sword. Um, but we also like, we, many of us don't have insurance. Um, many of us are going into the homes of people that we've only met a few times and spending significant amount of times in their homes. It's, it ends up being a learning. Um, when I talk to a lot of people who are going into doula work, um, they don't fully believe that we can be a, at risk. And, and, you know, and I'll get calls from them later being like, yo, you talk to me about that. And I'll be like, yeah, yo, I'm so sorry that this happened. What, what do we want to do now to make sure as much as we can, that that doesn't happen to you again? You know, I mean, and again, that's where Okama came out of, right. So that we can, we can have, we can have people working with other people who see them as human mm. um, and want to treat them as humans you know, um, and vice versa. Uh, so it's not just about clients. It is also about us and our safety. What would you say for yourself, Tamini, in terms of um, being on the on the seat or the side as a care provider? Uh, do you feel like there's a difference when you're supporting someone who's non-Black versus someone who identifies as Black? Um, yes. And I will also say that I think being a midwifery student is like a unique position in that you know, we don't always get to choose where we're placed. And things that I have learned is that in certain areas of the city, there are more or less Black people. Um, and so that really plays into kind of, we don't really necessarily have a choice with who our clients are. Um, and so it there are a range of experiences from like 100% outright, like this is anti-Black. Um, so, you know, having high volumes of clients denying me being part of their care as a student um, in a teaching facility, for example. Um, and also clients who are like super generous and like really invested in my learning. And so it kind of teeters this, this kind of gamut of experience where I kind of feel, I end up being kind of hypervigilant, like, like, is this anti-Black or will I experience this um, in this clinical placement? Um, however, one of the kind of 
things that have been has been really helpful is building a network of black midwifery students um, and black midwives to connect with so you know across the province of Ontario, a lot of us are more recently have become connected with one another, where we can be like, yo, this thing happened in clinic or, you know, X, Y, Z, or, you know, does anyone experience this? And then really trying to help each other through both peer support, um, advocacy support, sharing information, sharing resources. Um, so it's not such an isolating experience because as students, as Black students in midwifery care, we experience anti-Black racism in the clinical setting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're, we're, we're figuring it out, you know, <laughs> and having people who have, um, you know, having each other's backs has been a big, a big, big help. Do, do you have a story or an encounter that you often lean on in those moments to, to get you through the more challenging moments to keep you, to keep you going and keep you centered on your, why you're even engaged in this work? <laughs> For me personally, um, it's a combination of, you know, the stories that I've collected and all those conversations that I've had with people, um, as well as my own, um, just like, you know, being a black woman and then seeking, um, like medical care for my own pregnancies and births. It's, you know, I, I feel like I am even more on edge than the average person just because of the work that I do. I'm like extra hypervigilant. Um, and I don't want like my daughters to experience that. I don't want anybody else to have to continue to be on high alert just to, you know, seek medical care, something that is simple. Um, and I also, I think about, um, just because my background is in child development, I'm always thinking about what does this mean long-term for people? And I think, you know, when we're teaching uh, self-advocacy skills to parents for, you know, their pregnancy and their birth. What does that mean going forward for their interactions that they'll have with their children's doctors or their childcare teachers or their teachers or, you know, going forward, what does that mean long-term? So I think that this work is hard, but it has a, like a long lasting ripple effect that will be positive and is worth it in the end. For yourself, Cassandra, do you happen to have uh, a story or an encounter or a moment that keeps you going? You know, I don't know if there's like one in particular. I think like I was, you know, I had been speaking to you earlier, Trish, about, you know, the fact that I, um, I just took on a client again and it's been a while since I have um due to some of my experiences as a doula in the last couple of years and you know and 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 while we were having our conversation and it was coming to a close there was just a moment where um like they had made reference that they were really grateful um that they were going to have another person in their um, like arsenal was the term that was used. Um, but like, I, you know, I really think like on their side mm -hmm. and it just, it reminds me of sort of the, the isolation, the loneliness that I think many of us feel, um, whether it's navigating healthcare or anything else. 
And, um, and I constantly joke that like a doula is your, is your supposed to be your like hired best friend, you know, when people are always like, what does a doula do? I'm like, Oh, hired best friend. You know, we do whatever our homie needs, you know? And, um, and I just, I really liked the idea that I really like the idea. And I say idea because I don't want to speak for other people, but the belief that we might be creating just a little less isolation amongst a community that has had so much current and historical um, intentional separation, you know, and um, and the idea of this being something that can bring us together, um, you know, and even just hearing, like, even just hearing you, Tamani, talk about you know, how you have a network of like black midwifery students and black midwives where you can just be like, yo, you will not believe what happened in clinic today. Like I, I, I see the, the, the power that that has to like allow someone to release and empty their cup so that it can be refilled, you know, or, or it fills their cup. And, um, and I think that that, that's a lot of what doula work teaches me. It's like about being a human, like, what is it to be a human in a community? And so I think that's sort of what keeps me going in it. If that, I don't know if that makes any sense, but absolutely, that's sort of what, what keeps me going. You know, it's the idea of, of bringing us back together or bringing us together. Um, and I think birth work really can do that. Um, and, and also just the idea that um, we're treating this time as a rite of passage, as opposed to this, like, um we need to go with this work of advocacy oh my gosh this kind of resonates as like a black futures question to me um <laughs> and like imagining like what what do we hope to see like be yes. created for black people yes. and black families yes. um <laughs> and one of the things that i feel really committed to at this point kind of in my studies and when reflecting about where I hope to be as a midwife and what I hope to do um, is I really think that like single access um, like healthcare services or wraparound services for example where everything that people need is in one space mm -hmm. um, and like strong interprofessional relationships so like listening to Cassandra I'm like yo let's get it like if strong relationships between midwives and between doulas, um, strong relationships between midwives, doulas, and OBs, and um, social workers, and whoever might be needed, that Black people and families can have access to healthcare services that meet the fulsome needs that, you know, the fulsomeness of their needs, um, of our needs. <laughs> um, and also, I really love the idea of mobile like pregnancy and postnatal services. Um, and I feel like it's something that could be better utilized where more of the services are going to where people are as opposed to having them come to us. And there are lots of models that exist in the city in particular around harm reduction services um, or for people who are pregnant and using substances that like are really exceptional. Um, and so I think that there are already models that exist, but like, for it to be specifically for Black people, um, you know, registered midwife Althea Jones with Ancestral Hands Midwives, um, really trying to push for services that, like midwifery-led services for Black people in the GTA, like 
it is a revolutionary time, I think, for Black people in healthcare. And I'm like, as I listen to everybody talking, I'm like, a whole last thing is happening, you know? Mm. We're, we're on our way. <laughs> Do you feel, Cheyenne, that we're on our way as well? I definitely feel like we're moving in the right direction. Um, I think that is very slowly um, going, but I, I feel like it is going forward. Um, I think people are starting to do a better job of being more, more self-aware of things. Um, in, like you were saying to Marnie, like the whole system needs an overhaul. Um, but of course these things take time. And in the meantime, I think a really good way um, is for healthcare providers to work on their own provider bias, because I don't think that, you know, doctors and midwives and nurses are waking up every morning saying, I'm going to go to work and traumatize some people today. I don't think they're actively saying that, but that is what they're doing. Um, so there's, there's a huge disconnect. So obviously that needs to be addressed. And that is one of the things that I think can be, um, you know, addressed and fixed a lot quickly, more quickly than, than the overhaul of the whole system, which needs doing, um, but is not a tomorrow thing. But anybody can, you know, stop today and, and assess their, their, own about, their own bias and, and beliefs and, and make modifications. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Cheyenne, you said it. You totally said it. You totally said it. I think a lot of people will sit in trainings or they'll hear you know, maybe they'll even listen to this podcast and be like, that's terrible. I don't want to do that. And you know, deep down, they don't want to do that. But then you add on to the layer of them being tired and frustrated and being overwhelmed by clients and, you know, and get them on a bad day and sometimes even get them on a good day and are not aware of the very intricate and what to them probably seems minute ways that, yeah, people are being traumatized in care, just simply the way a question is asked or the way something is approached. And, and you really said it like being, being like aware of how we could be impacting without like getting into the guilt space. Cause guilt helps no one. Like it really doesn't help anyone. It's the ego acting out. So like getting out of that guilt space and just being like, you know what, I could be complicit in this. So how can I fix it? Cause that's like the best way to move forward. And you're right. I, I, you're so right that people don't look at themselves. They look at, oh, those people over there being racist. That's bad. You know? Um, what you just said, Cassandra, about how things are said. I have the perfect example from a quote that I took out of my research that um, one of the moms was asked by her midwife, uh, was your pregnancy an accident? And, you know, part of the screening questions are, was this a planned pregnancy? Which is a valid question. But when you modify it to was yep. this an accident, yep. that totally changes um, the relationship going forward. And when you add on these feelings uh, associated with stereotypes towards Black women about you know, being irresponsible and having many partners and all these things, it just makes it so much worse. And those change of words is so much more than I think that that midwife realized in that moment. Yep. yep. Well, and like, and then add on a lot of my, my clients who identify as men um, or identify as non-binary, they get a lot of um, care providers who will say to them, 
um, you know, so, so this wasn't intentional, right? Like just making that whole assumption um, and turning that, that conversation into, well, obviously you weren't trying to get pregnant because you don't identify as a woman, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it, you're right. It, the assumptions are like, inten- and I would even say like, why can't we ask, you know, so, Hey, how are you feeling about this pregnancy? You know, like, can't we just like get right back down to how are they feeling about it? Cause you're going to get all of the answers out. If you create space for, for someone to share how they're feeling emotionally, you know, about something. I, yeah, I can't believe that. Was this an accident, especially to a black woman? No, 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 that's loaded, loaded. as fuck. Yeah, there definitely needs to be more assessment as to like, why are you asking this question? And once yeah. you get that answer, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. You know, is it valid for what you're doing? You know, I, yeah. when I'm talking with healthcare providers and, and ways that they can reduce provider bias, I always say, ask yourself, is it true? Does it matter? Like, yeah. if you're, you know, do you really need to know? Yep. And if you do, like, what are you doing with that? Yep. <laughs> and totally. you know, is it really that important? Totally. I, that's a that's a constant thing that we have as pushback for um, Okama with um, people who fund us, because often people who fund us, they want information about our clients and we do not take any information that's not necessary. Um, like we'll only do labor notes if someone wants notes about their labor and it's for the person who's been laboring so that they have that backup if they want it. But it's it's wild how um, how how much people are expected to disclose about themselves that may actually not be anything that that care provider they're dealing with actually needs to know necessarily. And uh, yeah, we get pushed back all the time. Where's your documentation? You don't get their names. You don't get their reasons. That's not for you to know. You just need to know the work's being done. And so pay us to do the work, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Why? Mm, I feel like on the like, end of being I think it's a funny place to be like both a black person in like who accesses healthcare but also being like learning about how to become that very person like a healthcare provider Mm. or professional and one of the things that I find with taking like health histories and things like that is that the questions can be super invasive and it's really I think exactly what you're saying is learning how to frame the questions. And I think with midwifery, one of the benefits is that because we have longer appointment times, I think it offers an opportunity um, to reframe the questions and allow clients to ask questions, um, to tell them what we use this information for. For example, um, it's a, it's a, I think that's one of the spaces as well for advocacy um, for um, like clinicians and healthcare professionals that, you know, that tool, that document says so much about this person. So for example, whether someone is trans and accessing healthcare and not needing to explain the same story over and over and over again, like strong documentation could actually be used as an advocacy mm-hmm. tool for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's all I wanted to add. If you love the podcast, please leave the podcast a review or subscribe on iTunes to keep it going. Think you have a birth conversation that matters and want to share? We are always looking for stories. So contact us at thebirthtalks.com or on Facebook. If you have comments on this episode, find us on Twitter or Facebook at The Birth Talks or use the hashtag The Birth Talks. I'm your host, Trish Langley Frempong. Until next time. <laughs>